the obvious one, or an obvious one, seemed to be chainsawing. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Cosmic Cast. I'm John Penny Fisher and as per usual I'm joined by Tom Harvey and Rick Berber here. Hello, how are you doing? And we've got two extra special guests this week. We've got Jeff Evert and Andy Smedley. How's it going? Very well. Very well. Great, thanks. So tell me about a bit of yourselves then. So what, what are your positions here at uh, Manchester then? So I'm a senior lecturer in the mathematics department, which might be a bit unusual for quite a few of your, your listeners. Um, and I'm basically kind of an all-round applied mathematician. Um, but my background... Um, has always been in glaciology, so studying ice sheets and ice caps. Um, and more recently, it moved into studying debris-covered glaciers, so glaciers covered in bits of rock that's fallen off our surrounding mountainsides. And it's essentially that which led on to this project and why I'm here now. And I'm a PDRA postdoc in the School of Maths at the moment, and my training was actually in atmospheric science. And so my route into this project was slightly unusual um, because... I modelled and measured sunlight, and that's actually one of the drivers of the processes that we're interested in in the meteorite project. Yeah, so that that brings us on to that actually. So we're interested today to talk to you about the meteorite yeah. project in the Antarctica. So we we talked to Katie Joy about it in a previous episode, uh, but she was more on the ground of actually uh, getting the meteorites themselves. So you were actually the founder of the project idea, though, and how did that come about? Yeah, it's um. It started a long time ago, really. It's 2012, um, so just before the Olympics. And it came back to that idea, um, what I mentioned before, of debris-covered glaciers. And we had held a, a workshop in the, in the Dolomites with um, about six, seven academics out there on a speculative workshop. So essentially, I brought along, um, I got some funding, first of all, for it, um, but some seagull funding to, to fly us out, to, um, essentially to get out of Manchester, to go to somewhere a bit more um, picturesque, <laughs> um, where we can have a bit more enlightened thoughts. I feel um, like that was in the grant application. That, that was just in the grant. Said, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was, it was, exactly. The, yeah. Having a retreat, I think a retreat's yeah. a vital. And was, they and often and fund those things. Exactly, just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. they love yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. Funding councils love a give yeah. retreat. And, um, Anyway, we managed to wrangle that, and um, we headed off to a beautiful bit of the Dolomites, away from mobile phones, the internet access was rubbish, and it was perfect to actually do some thinking. Um, and we took along some speculative problems um, that I knew nothing about, but I figured there could be something interesting from them. And like I say, my background, well, my, I guess my educational background is mathematics, my applications have always been to, to glaciers. Um, I've been looking to go into other areas, so debris-covered glaciers, so rock-ice interactions, and you get some very interesting phenomena happening when you cover um, glaciers with rock or dust. Um, and anyway, a group of us met up there, and we started just basically chewing the fat um, and working some nice ideas, eating good food, drinking alcohol, and just letting the conversation flow. Um, and from that, someone then said, oh, have you ever thought about meteorites and someone said oh yeah they, they sink into the ice and it kind of blew us away because uh, none, none of us were space um it was space scientists or knew anything particularly about the planets um and but it went from there there was a seed of all oh, this me meteorites in the ice you know what are they doing there um but the thing is we'd just been working on a toolkit essentially of how you would model rock and ice interactions and through that we came across this this idea and it was in, it was on the way back actually it was in a pub in munich airport 
that um, these meteorites might have sunk into the, the ice. Um, and we thought at the time it might be governed by their albedo. So the darker a meteorite, the further it would sink. Um, so we just had this funny idea that you're going to get these meteorites bobbing up and down underneath the surface. So, sorry, just why why does the darkness of the meteorite make it more Because dark sink? material, kind of by definition, is absorbing more more energy from, from light. Um, so from solar energy is being brought into it, and that energy can then be converted into energy able to melt the surrounding ice. So these things can potentially sink down through through the ice because they're warmer. And you see this on, um, well, you can feel that at a hot plate when it's dark. It gets a lot hotter if you just lie out in the sun. Or your car, if a dark car gets hotter in the sun. Yes, exactly. So so from there, we just had this, this daft idea. But like I say, we, at the same time, we had developed a toolkit of mathematics out there we could apply to some problems. And each of those kind of three or four problems we developed out there and discussed have taken on their lives of their own. They've been really, really productive and very, very interesting. Quite esoteric, undeniably, but very, very interesting just by having that creativity that's to be honest, it's so often not allowed in kind of academia nowadays or kind of poo-pooed. Um, but this, there was this one of the meteorites. And like I say, it was one we collectively knew the least about. And it was that about four, a fortnight later that um, I was a user of Facebook at the time. I, I hardly ever go on it now. But I saw popping up on Facebook was Katie Joy coming to, um, coming to Manchester. And I knew Katie separately before from a, a previous life and we, we used to go climbing together. Um, and oh, she's coming to Manchester. I wanted to, she's coming over here, and I obviously knew she was a planetary scientist. Um, and I got in touch, and we met up, and said, do you, "Do you know anything about meteorites?" Turns out she knows a lot about <laughs> meteorites. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, it kind of went from there. And then she and she was again. She was because she was um, before she got snared in by the uh, I don't know the admin that goes with working at university. She was fresh into the university. She's clearly very good academically. But um, she was she was good to to throw kind of um, blue sky ideas at, um, and so she then got involved in this and looked at the data to see if any meteorites are missing, and the iron meteorites were missing from Antarctica, and things started to to roll from there. And it wasn't just that that was ser serendipitous. It was basically everything in the project was serendipitous. It was Katie had turned up, also had a cracking MSc student, a guy called Michael Coughlin. Um, who had a physics background but was doing a master's in maths at, at Manchester. Um, and he wanted to be involved with this project. I presented it saying, look, I've got no idea about anything on this project. I don't really know it's going to work. It's completely speculative. You're going to have to do something really novel. Um, it's probably not. It's probably going to be completely fail and you'll be kicked off the course. Um, but he was willing to do that. Um, and he was absolutely superb. He got his teeth cut perfectly with this. And at the same time, the other bit of serendipity was having... Um, uh, the atmospheric physics um, group involved, namely Andy uh, here, who there was another collaboration going on between mathematics and earth and atmospheric sciences to do with, um, I think, clouds and scattering light within clouds. And they had huge expertise and access to, to freezers, but expert, expertise in actually knowing how light works um, and how things heat up in an icy environment. And also how to how to use a laboratory, which obviously I didn't know how to use. Um, and so having... Um, Michael there and then starting to work with Andy we had Katie Mike and Andy all by chance in the same place at the same time um, and things just rocketed from there and I remember the time it, it, it really the, it hammered home to us that we might be onto something is when Mike was putting into these these bits of ice um, some meteorites that we had bought um, online and basically just freezing them in blocks of ice and shining a solar simulator lamp on that Andy had sourced um, and and 
it worked. We could shine a light on these things. The ice didn't actually melt on the outside, but we could video these meteorites melting down through there. And the wonderful thing about that is that it, it was doing exactly what the maths had predicted, but obviously with mathematics and a bit too much science in general is that we believe the theory too much there's not enough actually getting your hands dirty and seeing it actually works and in reality i probably without having andy involved probably would have left the project there go oh we've shown the mathematics of it you know job done well, I, th I think the problem that you had when as i came on board was that there wasn't an understanding of light and i think you just basically had a regular desk lamp yeah. and you're using that to try and illuminate the meteorite and ice and nothing was happening and if you got the light too close everything melted and it's the spectral components of that light that matter so using the solar simulator that we had access to there's less infrared in it so it doesn't heat the ice too much it gets scattered by the ice gets absorbed by the meteorite and then it that alone sinks absolutely and so exactly so having that it just showed my noddy background to it that, at that time having andy involved say oh we thought about this made a huge difference um, to actually kind of broadening our knowledge of the actual physics of, of what's going on. Because as mathematicians, we like to take averages of all parameter values and everything. We just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater a lot of the time. Um, and along with that, we actually had um, the Manchester Amateur um, Astronomical Society involved with the project. When they were taking, um, they had two guys working with us and they were absolutely superb. And they were taking albedo measurements of our of our meteorites, so and doing a really great set of set of work for us. Because again, we were under the, at that time we were under the impression impression that it would be the darkness of the meteorites. So we just in our heads thought, well, iron's probably darker than than rock, um, and that's what's going to cause it. And of course, the results come back from their albedo measurements, and they're basically the same. Which, as you would know, because these things get burnt up as they come through the atmosphere, and they, you look at them, they're black, um, and suddenly it's like what's what's the difference um and eventually we figured out and it was actually the maths that really showed it and then the experiments confirmed it that it was the thermal conductivity that's the big yeah. the big differentiator there how easily these materials can transfer um thermal energy across their bodies um as if you imagine if you have a a meter-wide lump of rock or a meter-wide meter-wide lump of iron you know it's not going to take too long for that iron on one side one side of it to feel the heat of being applied on the other but a rock could may never get there you know even in a human lifetime so um so that was the key differentiator there so that that gave us the mathematical model that suggested the process might work and we've got some basic experiments in the lab that confirmed it but it's a limited number of samples and it kind of it backed up what you're seeing out in the field where you've got this underrepresentation of iron meteorites compared to uh, chondrites and others um, in Antarctica. But of course, then there's only one way to actually prove that the iron ones are sinking underneath the surface, and that's to go out there to Antarctica and look for them. Take it to the next level, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, it was the... Because again, each bit of the project kind of thought, oh, that's the end of it, because there's yeah. no way we could go further. And I was on the a call to the, the British Antarctic Survey because I was involved with them uh, kind of separately. Um, and I said to them, look, we've got this wacky idea about, about meteorites. No one's going to fund it because it's not big data. It's not healthcare. It's, you know, it's not dark matter or something. It's, it's something, you know, it's, it's novel. But no one likes novelty. Um, and uh, the, but then the person on the phone said, well, you know, there's the, the Levy Hume Trust you could have a look at. They, they kind of like products which are probably going to fail. Um, and... Uh, 
and he was incredibly positive. He said, well, give it a go. You know, we, we actually, and we, at that time, I said, well, they, you, the British Antarctic Survey wouldn't work with us. And he said, well, they've just changed the rules with the Lever-Hume Trust. So the normal research councils, um, if they get a project funded, BAS, the British Antarctic Survey, will do the field logistics for them and only them. But they had literally just changed the rules to allow the Lever-Hume Trust to be involved as well. And they said, well, we could be the test case for that to see if that's possible. Um, as in going to a research body, body who funds risky science, um, who now BAS could support. It'd be good for BAS because it's diversifying their income and it's diversifying their science as well. Um, and suddenly it's like, oh, right, we could uh, potentially go and test these. Um, and at that same time, the, the work we developed with everyone, and everyone involved with the product was, was obviously good, and they had the right mentality to, 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 to things, and you know, not, be, not be frightened to try something. And we got a decent publication on, on the back of it. And that suddenly was the green light to really go hammer and tongs for a, for a good solid grant. Um, and, and we did that for the, with the Lever Hume Trust. And it's one of those grant projects, you're writing it, and it was like, this is going to get funded. From day, you know, from day one, it was going to get funded. And we wrote it as if it was going to get funded. And, that was, and when, you, when I go back through it and you read it, it, it reads as a grant which knows what was going on. Um, because vaguely it did, because we had, in a way, because it was such a, not imaginative product, such a ridiculous product, you could, you could kind of fantasize about the product to work out all different scenarios of it. And actually that came across in there and we put a lot of thought into how things would progress if we got the money. Um, and there were so many uncertainties in there anyway. Um, but we were very honest with them saying we have under these scenarios, we'll do this or do that. Um, and at the same time as that, um, there's the other bit of good, good fortune in the product was getting involved with the, the engineering department here. Because the huge thing about the product, the product really isn't a glaciological problem. It's not really an astronomical problem. It's actually a bit of electrical engineering. And that's where the majority of science is now happening, um, as it should. And we with have a, instrument design, really, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah. And they, we, with the a team here um, led by Professor Tony Payton, and we've got three excellent guys um, working on the project, um, essentially building a massive metal detector. And they really, really, really know their stuff. And again, they've got the right attitude. And again, that came around just by having a conversation with someone saying, oh, you should speak to this person. And the whole project really is around, the reason it's progressed forward, it's just by chewing the fat with people. It's not by emailing people, it's sitting down and having a coffee with them. And again, we had this bit of good fortune there. And we bought in effect many favors from their group. They're putting in so such effort into this. And they're getting a lot back, back from it as well. But it's, it's um, they've, They've essentially designed a massive, great nest detector that gets slung on the back of a skidoo. Um, but that process has been a, a whole load of, well, effort for them and us, because it's, nest detectors, first of all, don't necessarily like the cold, and they certainly don't like being smashed around the place. Um, and here we are, dragging nest detectors over the surface of ice at speed, smashing into bits of ice and rock. Um, and about minus 20 degrees. And about minus 20, for potentially for weeks on end hoping they're going to find some meteorites underneath the surface. And that's been a really enjoyable bit of the project, actually able to do that. And not only does the electronics work, but also the actual um, the design of the system. How does that work? And that's been led by the British Antarctic Survey um, on that, who've, all, who've been superb in advising the project and keeping us 
realistic with everything as well. So did you already know that this metal detector would be designable before you applied for the grant itself then? No. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> I, knew, I knew there was a metal, there's such a thing as a metal detector. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> I knew iron meteorites were mainly made out of metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the, exactly, and then the other bit was obviously the, uh, the dark thing with the, the grant was um, you put an outline proposal in and the full one, and your, but your cost of the outline's got to be the same as the full proposal. And your outline one's by nature a little bit more speculative, but you've got to have that cost right. And I have no idea how much an ultra bespoke piece of Antarctic <laughs> metal detecting costs. And so it's like, oh, I think it's this much. Um, and it's, very, it's actually coming out to be not too wrong, um, which is a huge relief. That's the point of budgets. That's the point of budgets. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was. But yeah, so that was kind of novel. And it was when we presented to the engineering team, they were, they, they were the sort of engineering team who you would want. They were going like, okay, that looks hard, but you know, we've got some ideas. Um, and we weren't sure, we, what, was it magnetometers we were looking at as well um, to use? or There was different techniques. We, could, we even considered um, um, ultrasonics as well to use. But it we needs could, to be something practical. drones and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, imagery of different types. Mm -hmm. you know, can you detect underneath the surface? We'd gone around the house. We'd given lots of thought to what would work. But I didn't know, we didn't know exactly you know, the design or the cost of it. But we, you know, we, could, we could put lots of consideration say, into drones. So Bass have just bought this big fancy drone. This is kind of military type drone. But even that, when he's got a camera slung underneath it, isn't able to pick up the size of meteorites. When the speed it's going at, even with an ultra-high um, res camera, wouldn't work for this sort of project. I think it's limited by wind speed as well. It's still like all sorts. But it is, I mean, even if it could cover, you, you know, don't need a human there to do it. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work in terms of the, the image resolution. So, But this kind of give the, gives the suggestion that you're looking overall of Antarctica. I mean, Antarctica is a big place. Was it 12, 13 times bigger than the UK? Possibly more. Um, and you're not just strip searching backwards and forwards across the entire area. You're looking in specific places. But Bath hadn't been to any blue ice areas looking for meteorites, so we had no idea yeah. where to go. So that was the uh, the other speculative bit of the project. From again, putting this idea together that we're going to find meteorites. Not only do we not know if there is a hidden layer, and we're just refining someone else's model. We didn't know they were there. We had. Didn't know if we could build the equipment. We just want, we knew it was potentially possible. And above that, as exactly what Andy said, we had no idea if we could even go to an area where there would be meteorites there. So as in on the surface, let alone below the surface. Um, so we were restricted to going within the, the, the British Antarctic Territory, which is a big, big wedge of Antarctica, essentially from, if you imagine the arm going off towards South America, um, the Antarctic Peninsula. Peninsula, going straight to the South Pole, and then from the South Pole up towards... Halley, um, going towards basically South um, South Africa. That kind of wedge is it's about six, sixty degrees, I think, in longitude, yeah. isn't it? Big area, but there hasn't been any, any meteorite searches in there, um, or very very or minor incursions, but predominantly been untouched. Um, You're taking a huge amount of risk. Oh yeah, there's there's risk all over this project, and it's um, but that, that's yes, there's tons of risk, and but that's again, that's why we couldn't go down a. RC UK route, a uh, research council UK. We needed to go down something that the Levy, more of a Levy Human Trust route, and any other funding charities out there who might be interested in future things. Um, the, um, but it's um, yeah, it was it was a huge risk in that, and that was a lot of work for um, Andy and myself, um, predominantly Andy. Um, this uh, what past year and a half when Andy came on. So Andy was doing the the light scattering to start with, as in the atmospheric side, but then he came on as the as the main kind of uh, the well, postdoc on a project, but 
I mean, it's mainly geophysical data analysis, getting the data sets together and using that to ask questions about, can we tell which are the best areas to go to? I think Katie in the last podcast mentioned about, you know, meteorites are normally found in certain stranding zones on the blue ice areas. But there's still quite a few areas that you could look at and search in uh, British Antarctic territory. And you can't practically do that in a field season or two. You can search one or two. So it's which one maximizes our chance of success. And that was a, yeah, that was a hard question. Um, and it was one we had to nail. So you know, not only do we, it's not one of those things you can just stick it out as a publication in the literature and, you know, someone may pick it up or whatever and it gets cited half a dozen times or something. It was something, yeah, well, hang on a second. You have to get it right because you've got a human being there going there in a few months' time. Um, so suddenly it was like, oh, right, you kind of forget about kind of the, the publication, the academic side of it. You just, you must get it correct. It becomes just a bit solve more, the problem. Solve the problem. So it becomes more of an engineering problem or industrial problem in that sense. It doesn't matter. Log- logistics, I think. Logistics, yeah. Logistics. But in terms, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So where do we where do we stick Katie for Christmas? Yeah. Um, and uh, and yes, yeah, and it, that comes around. There was, was a lot involved with that. Again, I had two very good MSc students who did some of the speculative science of things in there. Um, and like, I, I use MSc students as kind of I don't know the foot soldiers for these things, or the, or the spies, I guess maybe. So I kind of send them out way in advance of knowing that we may have to consider a problem just to kind of get the uh, figure out what's going on or how wrong or how hard. I am with this as well. How hard the problem's going to be, um, and once they've done some work there, and it's time to actually start it in anger, um, as in deploying Andy on it. We we've already we know our kind of uh, blue eyes from our crevasse. Sense, yeah, yeah. Um, so so that, and that works well. So in terms of looking at that, we have a kind of a. And this is when the mathematics comes back into it. Um, we're looking at conservation of of mass of the ice flow. So these meteorite stranding zones act as a bit like an eddy in a river, essentially, where the ice flows, but a little bit slower, a bit more stationary. And ice is still passing through, but meteorites can, which land further upstream, basically get deposited in these areas. But very concentrated in, but there very little is known about these, which is amazing, given it's such a really interesting topic. And it's it can be a classic applied mass problem. But very, very few people had looked at this. And when they had, they were doing... Um, Kind of more of a fluid dynamics approach as opposed to a, a, a basic conservation approach is what we used and so you're kind of looking at the ice velocity on the surface you're looking at the geometry of the blue ice areas which you can get from satellite data and you're looking at the rate of snowfall upstream for the conservation of ice but also with it the meteorites that are entrained and trapped within it and then the rate that it's lost from that blue blue ice area and when you put that all together, that gives you some sense of the rate that meteorites can accumulate, and hence, in time, their steady state uh, concentration on the surface. That's the idea. And, and with that, so then it's, it's we've got this model, um, and we can get an idea of where we want to send Katie from that, where we think it might be better. But the question is obviously how good or how rubbish that model actually is. Um, and a big bit of really good fun work has been actually seeing that the model seems to vaguely work. So we were able to apply it to um, uh, to other meteorite stranding zones of Antarctica where, where other people have been and other collection programs have been and get an idea of how, how the concentrate, the, the full flux, actually how much material is falling to Earth. And we were then able to compare that via the use of a latitude model. So we developed a model of how meteorite falls vary with latitude coming to Earth. And we were able to compare that with what's been found towards the equator. 
I'm actually find a really, really, really good fit. We're actually to, in from that infer the flux of meteorites to Earth above certain masses. Um, and in so doing, once you know the flux coming to Earth and you know the catchment area for meteorite stranding zone, you can infer an estimate of how many meteorites should be on any individual blue ice area. There's obviously area bars around these. Um, and we then applied that to our model of, of our potential meteorite stranding zones. And we came up with a list of basically a rank order where we think would be the best ones to go to. And it was a case of um, them plonking Katie out in um, ideally three of those areas this winter, quite close, logistically so they can, they can travel between them. And we originally were planning on going three last, last season. Uh, and it worked out, to, she was only actually able to go to two. Um, that decision was made on the flight over one of the blue ice areas. Um, but the, the neat thing of that, and it's and again, this, it's nice to see a kernel of truth and all, all this modeling kind of come together, is that Katie unofficially um, or uncategorizably, whatever it's called, um, has collected at 36 meteorites. Um, and now what we, and primarily Andy, had predicted um, of what Katie would find, or she was able to see how far she had traveled from her tracks. We were GPS logging where she had been and the field guide Julie had been. And we knew how wide their field of vision was, roughly. And from that, you can work out what surface area they covered. We then have to use our model and say, if the scene knows, you should find X number of meteorites. And Katie found 36. I think the model predicts like 41 or something like that. It was something. If you, if you kind of turn it into a number found per area of blue ice covered or searched, should we say, then I think our prediction was 10 plus or minus 3, something like that. And on that area that we're looking at, she found seven per kilometer squared. Yeah, so it's within one one stand deviation, and this is the first pass at these as well. So you know there there was snow cover there, so some would have been missing. So if that what Katie found would have been clearly a lower bound of what's actually there, because um, it wasn't the systematic search they were doing. So actually, the numbers will clearly be a little bit higher than what they they found. And um, the fact that we're one stand deviation down is great. So it was it was for us that was a huge success because Katie came back saying thinking, oh, I found 36, it's good, but it's, you know, it's, not that, it's not that high, you know, they find hundreds in other places. And it's like, well, it's got nothing to do with it. It's all to do with... How what, much area you can yeah, cover. And what, how good that area is. You can't control how many meteorites have landed there or how productive it is. But um, the, the other nice thing about the model was that there's two main, main areas that Katie visited last season. Um, and the one that she brought back most from, where there was a higher density, we predicted that that had a higher density to start with and the one that was yeah, good enough but not as productive in terms of meteorites that showed lower in the model as well so so yeah so that was a huge i mean that's a huge testament to andy's data bashing and model bashing there I mean, it was a huge amount which i can i certainly couldn't do the um do you think that this shows because people seem to match the model that people are very effective at spotting meteorites then no i think i think what you're assuming is that katie is as good as anybody else who's been there previously, because it's based yes, on yeah. previous collections. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. you're looking at a blue ice area which has been thoroughly searched, so you have a good idea of the area searched, mm. and then you know how many have been collected and categorized in the database. So how do you work that into interpreting how many meteorites should be within a certain area then? Because all we can base it off is how many people have found within a certain area. If you've know how many have been found within a certain area that gives you the density and then for each of those areas that have been historically searched then you can look at 
the surface ice velocity, you can look at the rate of snowfall and the rate of ice loss through the blue ice area. And those geophysical data sets tell you about um, the process that um, we're modeling here. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of tells you the flux to Earth um, and kind of averages everything out around mm. the Antarctic continent. So there's, I mean, there are uncertainties, but hopefully by taking quite a few areas that we do a better job of that estimate. Yes, yeah. And yeah. then you kind of invert the process. So, okay, we're assuming this flux to Earth, and for the area that we're interested in, we have this ice velocity on the surface. We know the snowfall rate upstream. We know how much ice is being lost at a certain rate um, in the area itself. Therefore, meteorites will collect at this rate per mm. year and be lost at that rate per year, and you get to a steady state. Um, and that, that's what our prediction is, essentially. Uh, the scary thing about all that modelling is, um, it, or the modelling of what Katie found, firstly, it, it, was, it was a huge relief to the project, and, it was, and it's also a kind of a, <gasps> oh my goodness, moment, because um, huge relief because it had been a big success for them. So, um, you know, it's the UK's first haul of meteorites comeback. It's a first... It's a new area to go to, and for for anyone to on your first pass to find a number of meteorites, and not only find, I mean, to be confident that it was the right number of meteorites to have found, um, was a huge, huge success to the product. And it essentially, it's taken a lot of the pressure off because one of the, you know, we're looking for this missing layer, but and that's risky enough. But at least we've come back with meteorites. We've shown how we can do it. Uh, the British Antarctic Survey now are now know how to collect meteorites and how to organise. Um, collection their missions the uk now has the inbuilt kind of expertise or confidence or however you want to call it to go and collect meteorites so it's it's there now it's been a big big success in, in that sense but at the same time suddenly it's like oh my goodness there might be a layer down there we may have to get the engineering to actually work we're gonna you know the pressure's suddenly back on and it's, and it's now it's off katie now because before i was certainly putting the pressure on katie and um, it's now i guess much more into my shoulders now to find this hidden layer down there um and the i mean the number we're looking for in terms of the, in this hidden layer of meteorites is so low that it's uh it's, it's nerve-wracking but it is possible so we i think in the yeah. we're looking for I think we're, we're looking, looking for a handful of irons kind of five <laughs> on, <laughs> that, on that area we're looking for those five so maybe you know that's maybe one every two or three days if everything that, that's the, the area that we can conceivably cover in a field season using two detector arrays of like so you like a width that you're going back and forwards of 10 meters so like 15 kilometers an hour <laughs> so it's um so we've got day suddenly it's like we've done all these calculations of what we have to do and the um and then we end up we, we we're only able to get that number after the so katie found her number of meteorites which confirmed the density of meteorites down there as in the number it, it confirms that then, there's meteorites on the surface there. Oh, yeah. i mean many people go to an uh, a blue ice area speculatively and find nothing so from that start with oh yeah yeah, yeah. And then, so we've got the a number density there, but then there's the question of how fast we can travel on. Because we, the faster you can go with the metal detector, the more area you can cover, so the more meteorites you find. But that then comes back to the engineering, because these detecting systems don't like going too fast. They certainly don't like being smashed around the place, even though they're going to get absolutely decimated out there. Um, and then we've been going up to Svalbard in the Arctic as well. So we, in March, we went out for the second trip to Svalbard. So we were in Svalbard last March, wasn't a year ago and um, then antarctica in january then svalbard in march and then going back down in november again and in those missions to svalbard it's been a great place to test the equipment so we're, there, we're not looking for meteorites there we're just testing it just dragging these detectors up and down then from that we we're able to work out 
what sort of speed we can move at. Um, and from that, we can get this golden figure of 15 kilometers an hour. So it's a speed where the skidoos aren't stalling, um, but also it's a speed which is robust. You know, if we accidentally go at Manageable 11 on the or blue 20, ice. we can yeah. still manage it. Um, and it seems to be working. So from that, we can then work out what area we can cover. Um, and well, we know, the, we know the surface area of what from Katie's trip, that blue ice area. And so we now can work out how long we have to go for to, to hopefully find these things and also find out an expected number of iron meteorites, which, um, like I say, is about five. <laughs> so it's, it's not many. Um, more or less. Let's not be too specific. But, yeah, but more or less. Yeah, you know, one would be a huge success for me. Um, the um, yeah, five plus or minus a thousand. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the um, exactly. Yeah, horrendous so when she comes back with way too many. <laughs> oh no, no. Well, that's it. So it's, well, the, yeah, it'll be the, fine. The, the funny thing is, we got an awful feeling, and it's, it's like perverse. Uh, Result, I, think, I think she's probably found some irons already on the surface or partly melted in. So it's, in a way, what she had found, you can see some photos in the blog, some of the meteorites that Katie collected were actually already sunk into the ice mm. with only a bit poking out the top, which is great news for us in some sense because it's showing at least it wouldn't take much for that meteorite to go, you know, an extra couple of million, millimeters and would be in. So it's showing it's physically possible. That's quite an interesting thing. So the original project was based on a, a fairly simple model of how the heating process and the melting process happened but that's been refined recently so it's more 3d and what we're actually seeing is quite a realistic preferential sinking of the irons so that sometimes they can be found on the surface you know at the right time of the year you know early in the season given that the um the climatic conditions are about right you know it's not too hot um but also they preferentially are deeper and more often sink into the ice than the chondrites. So how long would it take for, for a, a, of a given size for something to sink down? Is that something that's able to be constrained as well? Oh, yeah, it's probably even a matter of, because it happens quickly. As soon as it melts, it happens. So it could be within a period of a couple of days. So as oh, soon wow. as it's warm enough, it goes in, but then it's, it, the temperature might drop a little bit or the sun might go drop down an angle a bit and then it goes thin, down. So it's, once it is it's melting, rapid, basically. It's, it's rapid. not on, it's the scale, like, within, on the scale of years. Oh, no, 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 no. no, no. It's within a season, should we say, mm. a, su a summer season in the ice because when, when it's in steady state, as it were, it sinks down about as much as... Um, as far as it rises up during the winter mm. from the upward so motion kind of, of the ice. Five centimetres it will melt down in the course of a summer season. And generally that happens on the, in the hottest period of that season. So we're assuming those ones that have been found on the surface that have melted slightly in are ones that have actually been pushed back up rather than recently landing on the surface. Oh, yeah. 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 So that's probably worth clarifying, actually, because most, well, the majority of meteorites that are found on blue ice areas are didn't land there, but landed upstream. So they get entrained as snowfall lands on top of them and becomes ice and then the ice flows to these sort of stagnation points and then it at that stagnation point the ice flows upwards mm -hmm. so they all tend to rise up from underneath and then it's a case of how much heating you get from the sunlight to whether they warm up enough to um, basically counteract that upward ice motion. So does that does that mean that if you're in the field for a, a reasonably long time, that the you know number of meteorites that you might expect to find at the start of your trip might be different by the time that you finished it, or is yes. it? I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it suggests yeah. that in a, some ways you want to go as early as you can. Right. We're yeah. going reasonably early. We're going the first half of the year this year, yeah. also the first half of the season. So it's um, yes, it's, it's mm -hmm. yeah. that the um, 
I mean, people do go back and find, you know, they basically, they cleared an area, searched an area of meteorites, and they'll go back a few years later and find more. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're newly in falls, maybe they're new ones that have risen up, but perhaps they were just hidden the first time around. Yeah. yeah. I, I think when we spoke to Katie last time, you were still testing what the best way of actually getting a sunk meteorite out of the ice was. Have you made yeah, progress with that? Yeah, we're coming to my, uh, coming to my own here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not really a mathematician. I, 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 like, I like my uh, outdoor pursuits. And the, um, I finally found my calling in life, which is uh, chainsawing. Um, <laughs> I've always enjoyed it, doing bits of it, but then really had to, got into it in this project. And I got a, um, you can imagine what the health and safety. I mean, first of all, you, you, you go up to Svalbard and you're carrying rifles there, um, which are petrifying. For the polar bears. For the polar bears. Yeah. Yeah. Not the blasting <laughs> meteorites. Meteor just, just like the clarify. And so that adds a, kind of, a certain spice to things, although you, you, they're so petrifying that you don't want anything to do with them. But the, the chainsaws, that we were using in Antarctica to, to get, extract the meteorites. Um, because we've got this idea of, there these meteorites, you know, whatever, a foot below the surface. How do you get it out? And I mean, it's a blue really, ice is solid. It's yeah. really compressed. We're not talking about snow here. You can't it's chip it really out. Hard. You can't. Uh, you can't pee on it to melt, melt it out. You, you, you think, well, how do I get this thing out of there? <laughs> so Andy looks horrified, but that's true. <laughs> the um, the um, so uh, yeah, we had to explore all possibilities, and the the obvious one, or an obvious one, seemed to be chainsawing. The obvious one's a Jeff. Seems to be chainsawing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so um, but we came up with all these different ideas and uh, took an ice drill out there, chainsawing. And it, it, but it's, the trouble is, you probably won't. We're conscious that you may not be able to see the meteorite. You may have detected it, and you we don't. And so, if you detect it and you can't see it, you don't know what depth it's at, and you don't know what size it is. Um, so you don't. Um, so yeah, so that adds a, a difficulty in precision. So you can't just kind of. Um, You've got to give it some leeway yeah. when you start cutting. You can't cut just a small drill hole, like five centimetres in size. You've got to go around the entire thing, and so you get a block of ice, potentially 20, 30 centimetres aside. That's quite a weight, and it's quite hard to get out. And potentially, you know, we think, well, we want to be sensing down to 50 centimetres, which is what the equipment's designed to do. So you're getting out an object, which could be 50 centimetres deep, that you don't know how big it is. That's quite a large lump of ice to quite get out. And quite a weight. So that was... Um, so basically, I was doing all sorts of. My office just is full of geometric pictures of um, how do you extract something from a hole. I'm basically designed how I use a chainsaw to cut out various wedges around there, so I can get to 50 centimeters without hitting the object. Um, and as you could imagine, you know, this year is you know we were quite remote this year, not as remote as Katie was, but still, you're, you're chainsawing around on very very slippery ice. Just before mm. we got there, someone mm. got sent home from the field because they'd broken their ankle where where we were um, from slipping over. Um, and you still managed to get all the risk assessment forms yeah, through and everything. I don't know how, I don't know how we got yeah. over it. The, I'm um, just going to be stood on a very slippy surface with a very dangerous yeah, object yeah, yeah. in my hand. It'll be fine. Exactly. I was gonna, the, the, the kid in me kind of always kind of thinks, well, if you're doing something dangerous, the best thing to do is just not tell anyone about it. It doesn't work that way anymore. It doesn't work. Exactly. Good old days. Um, so fortunately, um, Andy and Katie love a good risk assessment. So they helped create um, a beautiful risk assessment. And it did assess the risk. And don't get me wrong, I was very conscious there were risks out there and the um the i got sent on a course which is great so actually i learned loads in the course a, a chainsawing course so i have a city and guilds 
level one in two in chainsawing. And is that a Manchester University RAN course? <laughs> it's, it's not. It's over in Chesterfield. Just we'll out of find on the E-Prog. Is, is, is that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 I recommend everyone to do it. it. It was really good. It was like me and prison wardens and um, outdoor pursuits people and people going to forestry. It was, it was great. And they were like, why are you digging out meteorites? So I was trying to explain to quite a diverse group why I was there. But it was great prison fun. warden need a it was a long story that that was a, yeah, yeah, yeah that was that was quite involved um the but anyway it was great fun so um playing around learning how to uh, maintain it and then um but w- the thing that the british antarctic survey said on the product for me was i had to use a an electric chainsaw um keeps it keeps the power down and it stops quicker if there's a problem so it's um so we had then and then you got questions of what well, is that going to work out there in the cold and goodness knows anyway you have we, to start asking questions about battery life yeah and he, and it's a long way to go to find out something doesn't work um because you can't get a spare and the um so anyway so that we anyway, went out there and played around with it I got some lovely pictures of me um stood in a hole with a chainsaw looking looking relieved um that I hadn't chopped a leg off um but then it was like well we we can try some other methods out there and we found. Um, a, it's basically a big drill which cuts a big fat hole so it would decimate a meteorite if you dug in and dug into it but essentially I could put a big circle around the target and I could drill in very easily about 50-80 centimetres deep and make a big circle and then essentially have a, an arm coming off it so it looks like a lollipop so a big circle with a stick coming off the side and I then put a something called a, a, a wood grenade down there so I got that through customs putting a grenade through um, and then you put it's this a, grenade. It's a lump of metal, wedge. though. It's a, bit, so it's a bit of metal. You just put it at the base of it, and then crack it with a lump hammer, and this big column of ice snaps out, and you get this beautiful section of ice. And there's no, it's, it's much safer than the chainsaw. So we've done all this palaver with the chainsaw to find that this other drill with this method <laughs> we thought might not work turns out works really, really well. So that's a a relief on the project. So that was essentially my my two things I had to get done this year was. Um, and Antarctica was check the sledge system actually work does it pull so the electronics was testing that does that work does it actually pull in the back of Skidoo we hadn't had chance to actually test a full system before um, all five panels on bl- pure blue ice yes yeah, so that made it work Svalbard, we only tested one yeah, before yeah. you and, it, and, it on, and it was on snow so it wasn't on the, in terms of the ice so the friction is obviously a, a lot less and then the other bit was actually can we extract these things so the, the upshot um, seems to be that Everything in the project is pointing towards if the meter, if the layer is there, we have, we a, have reasonable a reasonable chance, chance of finding. Yeah, so, and we and we we got our penultimate field trial tomorrow. Where we're going out to my field in the in the Peak District to um, literally go do a field trial on dragging um, the full system over the, the top of a of a meadow um, when we pre-place some objects to see if it works there. Um, but essentially, it seems to be. Um, there i think i mean there's also there's so many things which we're conscious we could go wrong with it but those big issues seem to be all right whereas we've got the we know there are meteorites down there we know um as you know sorry we know there's a the area going to act as the meteorite stranding zone we know our system works as a metal detector we know it can be dragged we know if we find them we can dig them out um we've got a good team Basically of people yeah and so it's, everything is kind of teed up for for finding this this layer if it's there uh but there are so many things which i'm very conscious of could go wrong i'm trying to think what could go wrong how could we mitigate that you know well in advance um and i think the big challenge it's a hard environment to fix things in though mm-hmm. you know i mean on the electronic side but also all the unknowns i mean if you think oh well i need to do some data analysis to try and figure out 
something new. It's like you're in the middle of nowhere. You've got a very small satellite link back that you can send like one megabyte at a time. You've got to take everything to be self-sufficient. So fixing unforeseen problems, it's a tough place. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's going to be a yeah a bit of a stress. And the um, but the I think the the big challenge we're going to have, assuming the electronics works, which clearly bits will go wrong every now and again, but it's it's going to be driving in a straight line. Um, so you've got a lumpy terrain, and you've got to cover the whole area. So you're doing these transects, making sure you cover everything, but you're doing it on a skidoo where everything is white. It's very monotonic. Um, it's a bit like plowing a field, really, isn't it's it? It's basically plowing plow a field, but without... Um, you know the well, boundaries. You know the boundaries. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. And you, when you plow a field, you can very clearly see the crops you've just yeah. cut because it's all the way you plowed because it's right next to you. Here, it's you don't really have that. So all we can do, and we hope it's going to be okay, we put basically spikes at the end yeah, of this metal detector, say. which is going to score the ice. So hopefully we can see these lines going up and down. We're hoping the skidoo is going to leave enough tracks. But that will be scuppered if there's a slight bit of any slight bit of snowfall. That's it. It's gone. So, so we, can, we can put a flag at like the end of a runway and just move it 10 meters yeah. along. How many next... of you can fit on the skidoo? Is it one person? One person. Time? So be, okay. the system, the operation we think is going to be two skidoos operating at a time, um, each one with its own detecting system. Um, and they basically go one just in front of the other but side by side so you're covering 10 square meters and you just go up and down and up and down and you move flags along so in the horizon you can see what you're aiming for and yes i think that's probably going to be the most reliable way yeah Mm -hmm. it's um but even then maybe it gets a bit whited out or well we well we hope it's going to be the most reliable way because we haven't tried it so 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 for me that's the big the big worry there the other worry is that we don't have kind of project creep as well um as in the tech because you're looking for a hidden layer but it's like going to a sweet shop and saying there's some hidden sweets here but there's loads of other sweets in the jars all around mm. and you should help yourself too and obviously you're going to go for the ones you can see just reaching hands for because there'll be more meteorites on top of the ice and we want to collect those but we mustn't do creep off and go oh i can see something in the distance yeah. let's go it's like no you're going on that line you won't we'll see anything in the distance yeah. exactly well, even you like, won't. You know, there's nothing meters. there there's nothing yeah, so not, in, in a distance i mean like 50 meters 100 meters but the it's the stuff in front of us because we will be we'll be covering the whole area so mm-hmm. we will go back and find those but if we come off those transects or get distracted by things it's gonna make it would scuff other projects so everything hinges on being quite quite disciplined very very focused on these so yeah how much time do you have to play with or is it all very much to the t you've got to be it's weather dependent as well yeah yeah we've put we've put contingency we're assuming about um a third to 40 percent of our time will be um Unused. watching watching dvds because the weather is bad and so yeah you know so we're not... sending this to the leverhomes trust um the yeah so we've got to be yeah we've put lots of contingency in there but essentially we i think we've got about four weeks i think it's something like 20 days of searching on the ice yeah. actively and then there's a contingency of weather, bad weather days. And then you've got a lot of shoulder time in terms of getting people and kit out there mm. and back again at the end. So we've, we've put it all in. And we've, we, again, the great thing about this, with all these logistics, we come up with something and then Bass tell us how it's actually going to be and what we've ignored. And they mm. keep it very, very realistic, which is fantastic. So they seem to be happy with our level of contingency 
in there. Obviously, we could be wiped out by the weather and it's just um, we don't do anything. There's but nothing the, you can do about it. There's nothing we can do it, about it, yeah. exactly. So um, all we can do is, uh, you know, give a good level of leeway and hope for the best. But it's... I mean, last time, Katie was stuck out there for like a week, 10 days at the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she just, the plane couldn't get out to her. Mm-hmm. Anything to get out of teaching, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the but yeah, she had a yeah, exactly. So that, that's going to highlight what we're going to what we certainly are going to face. Um, but it's yeah, I, I think. But the, the weird thing that certainly plays in my head with it, whether we find the layer or not, is it's the uh, finality of it. So once it's ended, well, yeah, that's, that's it. Ask. It's yeah. kind of like we've had all the whole product is so diverse and the characters involved have been so wonderful and it's it's so interdisciplinary. And um, that actually, when I occasionally go back to do kind of more mathsy things, I'm like, oh, I kind of. But but why why excited. is that the end of it? You find say you find this layer yeah. of meteorites, and your hypothesis is correct. Mm-hmm. You find them. What happens after that? There's got to be a load of analysis that goes. Well, in. Well, there, there is, but the in terms of the, but it's not a load of analysis. Essentially, that would prove a theory. That proves right or wrong. So finally, write up a paper on that. But that's. That won't take. In terms of that, the hypothesis is established, so it's it's more of a confirmation of it, and that won't take long. Mm. In theory, to write, you know, clearly it'll be rejected a million times, <laughs> but it's um, it's, uh, it's it, we'll, we'll get that done. But then there's the analysis of the meteorites, but that's um, will will take longer. But that's outside of the product. That's another yes, that's yeah, a separate thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's certainly outside of us. You know, we're not meteoristists. Um, so that'd be more Katie and yourselves be looking at those, those samples. Um, but from the product's point of view, it has this kind of brutal end. Um, and then we know what to do after that. It's going to be it's going to be such a high, and so basically a scientific high and an emotional high. So I mean, like I say, the idea came out in 2012, and suddenly we've got this end. It's going to be, um, yeah, I don't really know how to what to do after that because it's, then you go back to other science products. You know, like, they're good fun, uh, but you're like, but that's not taking me to Antarctica. Well, that how can I chainsaw that equation in half? You know, yeah. It doesn't have, have to have to so find other applications for chainsaws. Exactly. Well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, the mathematics of chainsaws. <laughs> I think that's going to be going to be it. So it's. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm conscious of that. That's going to have a uh, an ending to it, but at the same time, you know, I'm fully conscious and always have been. It's going to have this kind of brutal cutoff. Um, but it's I think. It's but I suppose it. more generally, you know, if we do find that the missing layer is actually underneath, that opens up other areas to searching using yeah, a similar yeah. method or an alternative method. But you know, people know to look underneath, and then you might find more ions. Oh, exactly. I mean, the amount of knowledge that we've... I mean, even discussing it now, suddenly I'm like, oh, yeah, we did like, the desktop lamp. And it shows how ignorance at the start. I'm um, just showing you know, shining des- a desktop lamp on a meteorite to see it, that it doesn't sink in those situations to where we are now. It's just been a colossal learning curve for, for everyone involved. And it's... Um, yeah, we'll, it may well be that other things spin off uh, on the side of this. And it's... I think what's nice that collectively we've shown we can deliver um, on a large, ambitious, and highly risky, scientifically risky project... Um, and it's been great. You know, had the whole broad very community, interdisciplinary, very very interdisciplinary. Um, we've had lots of people getting involved with this. You know, the whole you know it would have just been me just drunk in the Dolomites again, just with this idea. If it wasn't for everyone else coming in and really leading the project forward, um, and having that has been superb. It's been a, it's been very enjoyable to be part of. And hope yeah, we need to figure out how we could uh, evolve in the future. But if we find a bit of Mars underneath the ice, I'll be, yeah, I'll be <laughs> yeah, happy. I'll be yeah. retiring on that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> How have you found coordinating such a diverse group of academics? Yeah, it, that's been, it's been good. It's been good. Um, it's been very positive. It's, um, it's, if I could say anything I can do that I'm not dreadful at, it would be chewing the fat with people. I'm happy to talk to to whoever as long as they're positive um, and nice individual 
happy to chat with her and work with work with her. I'd much rather be doing that than having that's you're my subject area. That's all I'm going to discuss with. Um, and that's why I really, if anything, that's a bit of my kind of inverted commas forte, as it were. It's just to happily prattle to to whoever. Um, and that's been a success of the project because it's not me doing all these individual bits. It's more bringing in people who are experts in these areas and just giving them the yeah, essentially the space just to get on with it. Um, and they've absolutely flown, you know, like Andy, Katie, the engineering guys and, and Bass as well to do their own designs on things. And the PhD students, well, the MSc students, they've all been absolutely superb. Um, and I, I think what you're saying is very important, though, in, in terms of saying you're you're branching out to all these other people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in science, at least for me, I feel like you do get into this rut of thinking, oh, I need to stay in my lane. And yeah, yeah. This is my lane. I'm, I, I do Martian river systems. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm going to keep yeah, on yeah. doing that rather than going, oh, wait, no. The best way to get these amazing projects done is to branch out with yeah. other speak people. Speak to other people, absolutely. Yeah, speak to other people, exactly. And, yeah. But there is a challenge. I mean, there's not a challenge doing that. It's one, and everyone should do it. But the, the difficulty I found with it, and I was kind of, I'm always skeptic of management. But the uh, certainly <laughs> in the unis, it's always... Um, it's kind of, yes, everyone needs to do interdisciplinary stuff. And then there's this kind of, yeah, but you should be doing this kind of thing. And, you know, actually, that's what you, we want you to do. But actually, that's what we pay you to do. And there's, there's always a tension there. And certainly when I came back this, this January from Antarctic, and suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, but you missed all that month of, of all the work you should have been doing. It's like, I, I didn't miss a month. That is what I should. And it's getting, I have had a bit of a sense of humor failure with it all. Um, and, um, but essentially, that, that's more of a challenge. I think for universities or the university, needs to be a bit more to, to lead as it's trying to telling the, mm -hmm. the individuals to do as well um because they need and they, they're doing what the university has also been extremely supportive mm. but it need in, in many many ways it has but also it needs to there's a reality of doing interdisciplinary work which perhaps isn't captured by standing up oper, standard operating procedures of working within your own silo um, for all given purposes um and you know, we, science is going through a big shift without being wanting to go to more be more interdisciplinary. Um, so I think operating procedures need to mm -hmm. alter as a consequence of that. So essentially, I'm having to do kind of bits of upward management of what I'm doing. Um, but that said, don't get me wrong, the, the management have been on the whole extremely mm -hmm. supportive of the project, um, and the university has been extremely uh, supportive of it. Are there things you have to do in terms of plugging the university in the project, though? I think it comes quite naturally. Really. I yeah, think it comes actually, yeah. yeah I, I, I like a good plug of anything. The, yeah, yeah. The, but um, there's no pressure. But we, we put in the grant that we do outreach. But I kind of think that's what we should do anyway. So yeah, no, I agree. I, yeah, kind yeah. Of, it, it, well, I was just thinking the project is a very easy one to sell mm -hmm. to the media and to, you know, in terms yeah, exactly. of a, a press release or, you know, a radio interview or something. People accept it. They're interested by it. You know, you've got Antarctica, you've got meteorites. You know, it's a bit Yeah. And it's, but it's essentially in terms of the, the outreach as a... As a whole, so the you know a bit of the criticism you could say of the pro not criticism you could a cheap shot of the product could be to say we've done quite a lot of media engagement. Um, but I, I, but think, I think that's a good it's a good yeah, thing. No, so it's it it an yeah. extremely good thing. I think yeah, it gets yeah. people interested. Yeah, in yeah. The, yeah. yeah. I think we are at the end of the day we are funded by the public yeah, in yeah, some yeah. way or another, so they should be informed about what we're doing. Absolutely, right? and it's yeah. um, absolutely, and it, it's um, it's a bit I always have with it. I kind of these. We'd so pushed to publish papers and, you know, you've got to publish in certain journals mm. to get things. But then you step back from it and think, well, you know, I'll publish a paper or whatever, maybe 
50 people that year and read it. In reality, you look at the mm. stats, they're never that great. You know, maybe mm. a few papers will have a few thousand. I mean, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. But you know what I mean? You, you look at some of them and the reality is hardly anyone's reading these papers. And it drops off massively. And then you look at the, the media engagement of it or a newspaper article where we, or we get in on the radio and think, oh, right, that just went on the world service. That's mm -hmm. been listened to by several tens of millions mm -hmm. of people. And that's amazing. And even if it just enters a bit of the dialogue, bit of the, yeah. you know, they discuss it over the cornflakes and that mm -hmm. drift off. In they terms of far more advancing knowledge and getting people interested in the topic and, you know, the resource that is Antarctica, you know, the place that is mm -hmm. Antarctica, then you've done a lot more through the media yeah. than you have through another paper mm -hmm. that's it and it, you know, I have family members actually and, the, and friends and family actually understanding what I do now I suppose before you publish these kind of impenetrable papers mm -hmm. where you can't even understand the abstract let alone the rest of it and the um, it's been really enjoyable to see people actually understanding what we're doing so it's um, so it's, it's nice having that and it's, it's been really enjoyable actually distilling a problem down to something um, that anyone can understand but I think if there has been an ethos behind the media engagement it's to try and keep it vaguely high level um, Sorry, we, we ruined it. Oh, you destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, actually discussing it as opposed to going, you know, we're looking for Martians or something. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing like that. It's been actually really, really good. Um, and that, yeah, we've kind of. Well, you've helped the science, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. And it's. And yes, we, I mean, having the women's Svalbard this year, a certain uh, challenge we had, not only was I shattered from the Antarctic trip, then suddenly we're flying up to the North Pole. And we were doing it with the Today team. So we had this team doing a live, broad, live broadcast from this little hut with us um, on the project. And that added, yes, yeah, certain levels of stress and not tension, but positive stress. But kind of, you know, we imagine you've got trying to do an experiment. It's like, right, you're going live and whatever. You're like, <laughs> um, that's added, um, yeah, quite a bit of fun. But I, th I think the main upshot of the, the media engagement of things, and it's probably the most profound bit I'm doing in science now, is, is, is helped set some of the, uh, or we have actually, set some of the um, puzzles for today on, on Radio mm. 4 in the morning. <laughs> and I think that's, if anything, that's the highlight of my academic <laughs> career, so those 20-second puzzles. Um, I guess you can just pack it in now. I just pack it in. Yeah, I, that's yeah, it. That's it's it. Really I, done, I, yeah. I really enjoy doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no monetary gain. There's no whatever. There's no anything. It's just, it's just really enjoyable. But that's it. I think that's basically I've put myself, forget the chainsaw, just setting 20-second puzzles. Puzzles for the day. Well, that's it. I'm going to set it from now on. I think I, think I found my, uh, my, my... I hope you manage to work both the puzzles and the chainsawing yeah, into the final abstract of the paper yeah, you write yeah, with us. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Should we ask the final question? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you weren't involved in the career you're now in, yeah. what would you be doing? Oh, uh, well, I, I would do farming, um, and I enjoy doing bits of that at the moment. As in, um, so when I'm away, I've got to get someone to look after the sheep when I go away. So that's part of the fun. Can I can? Well, you, so you actually have sheep? Yeah, already? yeah. Wow, okay. I'm about to get some pigs as well. So that's oh. going to be part of the fun of my wife to wow. look after when I'm away this uh, this winter. Um, but I had a career before when I worked in finance. I'll say that quietly. Sorry, you worked in what? Sorry, finance. Oh gosh. Okay, okay, yeah. All right, thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, before your career in finance, you, yeah. you you would have carried that on. I wouldn't have carried. No, I, yeah. I left yeah. that um, because it was awful. But I did have it's. it's um, I then went from there back to science. So I did my doctorate, and then was told finance would be interesting. Did that? Oh well, well, yeah. I guess maths. Yeah, it makes sense. Exactly. But, yeah. it was, um, well, it, I was. Yeah, you, you're told it makes sense to do yeah. that, but it just didn't. It was. Uh, appalling so eventually yeah. that fired me back um but yeah if i had a choice now um i'd go into to farming and rewilding yeah wow, wow. I, think, I think i'd probably be doing something environmentally so you'd stay do you think in modeling or um, either in science or sort of something you know that's more actively improving things on the ground yeah yeah wow. yeah 
you wouldn't want to do something more important like finance or, <laughs> or cheaper. I, I wouldn't like no. to be doing finance. <laughs> well, can I just say thank you very much to both of you for coming on. It's been absolutely incredible. A really good episode. Yeah. And yeah. I think it really, just to sort of emphasise, I guess, what a wonderful project that is for promoting interdisciplinary science. I think it's a fantastic thing. Um, but on that note, yeah, we'll just give you a big round of applause and uh, we'll hopefully we'll have you again uh, when you get back from Antarctica yeah. at some point next year. So. Cool. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you.